Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. You've heard the old saying, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, let me tell you about this man, Sutomu Yamaguchi. It was August the 6th of 1945. Yamaguchi was in Hiroshima, Japan. What could go wrong? He was there on a business trip, and at 8.15 in the morning, he heard a bomber fly over the city, and suddenly there was that great flash of light, and he was blown over by a powerful force. And the reason, of course, is because a U.S. bomber had come along and dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. It killed some 140,000 people, but Yamaguchi was not one of them. His face and his arms were burned pretty good. He was actually blind for a while, and his hearing was damaged, but he somehow survived the blast. Well, he stayed put for the night, but the next day, Yamaguchi was able to travel to his home city, about 190 miles to the southwest. Well, his home city was Nagasaki. Three days after Hiroshima, on August the 9th, a U.S. bomber dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Well, Yamaguchi again, he second time in a few days, he sees this great white light, big flash, and the building that he was in was actually just completely blown over. And he was knocked unconscious, but he was not seriously hurt. Now, this atomic explosion killed some 70,000 people. But again, Yamaguchi was not one of them. He lived through this second atomic blast. Now, believe it or not, he's actually not the only one to do this. 210,000 people died in those bombings, but there were 165 people who were thought to be in both cities when both bombs went off and lived to tell about it. Yamaguchi, he survived two atomic bombs. He survived the radiation, and he even survived all the dangers of life for another 65 years, but he could not cheat death forever. In 2010, at the age of 93, Yamaguchi, he finally, finally gave in to the stubborn, relentless power of death. What two atomic bombs could not do, old age did. Death is the common enemy of all man. And how we spend our time speaks to our faith. Time is life, nothing more, nothing less. The way you spend your hours, the way you spend your days is the way that you spend your life. But the one thought that most people have right before they die is that I thought I had more time. A number of years ago, the satirical site, The Onion, ran the fictional article that had a very biting truth. And the article was titled, World Death Rate Holding Steady at 100%. Listen to the article. 
World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate unfortunately remains constant at 100%. And it goes on to say death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. Responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide. The condition has no cure. And I was really hoping that we might at least make a dent this year, the WHO director said. But unfortunately, it would appear that the death rate remains constant in total as it is since the dawn of time. Again, death is the common enemy of man. But the message that we find in Hebrews chapter 9 is that this does not mean, as believers in Christ, as the people of God, that you and I have to live in despair. There is hope for the redeemed, a settled hope, anchored in Jesus Christ himself. And we left off our study a few weeks ago in Hebrews 9 with verse 15. Read it with me. It says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The author has been contrasting the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with the new covenant that will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Go back a verse in your Bible, if you would, to verse 14. Go back a verse in your text. It says that Christ came to die. Christ's death was to cleanse the inner life of his people. And verse 15, it taught these first century believers that the sins that were committed before when they were under the Mosaic covenant, they were paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are forgiven. They are remembered no more. Now, the Mosaic covenant could never justify, redeem a person, a man before God. But God could still redeem his people in Israel before the cross. How is that possible? Well, because in God's eternal decree, God determined that the finished work of Christ on the cross was as good as accomplished. His death is the substitute for our death. His death is a penalty for our sins, for those who are called by God. You see, Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Israel, the nation, will one day receive her inheritance at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And believers like us, redeemed by his blood, will receive the inheritance that was promised to each of us. Yes, your days on this earth are numbered. They are indeed. But have hope in the inheritance that's been promised to us. Learn to actually appreciate death. Appreciate the death of Jesus Christ. Appreciate that our death will cause us to be reunited with him once and for all. Turn your attention to the day when we will receive the promises of God. Now, Hebrews has been talking about our inheritance the New Testament, it speaks very often of this. It tells us that believers who are faithful to Jesus Christ here in the now will be rewarded by Christ then. You see, the day is going to come when we take part in the wedding banquet at the start of the kingdom in Matthew 25. In Luke 19, it tells us that those who are found faithful will have the honor of reigning with Jesus Christ in the coming messianic kingdom. 
A glorious, a glorious future awaits us. Don't look back to trying to keep the Mosaic law or the rules of men. Look forward and learn to walk by faith. First Peter tells us that we have an inheritance reserved in heaven. Imagine for a second that you are just weighed down with a debt, a bill, something that you can't pay. And you try to pay it off, but nothing you do gets you caught up with your bills. The mortgage and the bills are just too much. And those nasty bill collectors, they start to get your cell phone number and, oh, they're, they're hounding you. They're texting you. They're calling you. They're emailing you. And you sink deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. And nothing but poverty stares you in the face. And the only path left for you is to declare bankruptcy with the hope that sometime, someday in the future, you can rebuild your credit and stand with honor. But then one morning, you discover that you are the heir of an estate from a billionaire who had died. You see, now your bills are paid, not because of something that you did, but because of the blessing you have received from another. And this is what has happened to us in Christ. We are the spiritual heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died leaving his last will and testament, giving us the righteousness and grace that belong to him and him alone. We are no longer bankrupt. Our huge debt of sin, it is gone, nailed to the cross. And this is what the author of Hebrews is starts to tell us again in verse 16. Read it with me. He says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Now, the author, he's still working his way through this argument, telling us of how our future inheritance in Jesus Christ is even made possible. Testament, what are we talking about? We're talking about a legal will, same word that is translated here as a covenant. We talked about this back when we were in chapter 8, that the last will and testament of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the new covenant. Now, the last will in Testament doesn't kick in until after a person dies. And this covenant, it was promised in Jeremiah, inaugurated at the Last Supper, and will be completely fulfilled at the second coming. And all that this text is telling us is that Jesus had to die. Christ had to die. Because when a permanent covenant was given, a blood sacrifice was required. And since the blood of the new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ himself, his death was needed. The focus here is not on the timing of the covenant. The focus here is on the idea that Christ was the blood sacrifice for the covenant. Now watch with me in the next three verses. The author goes back to the Mosaic covenant and shows us this same truth, that with the Mosaic covenant, a blood sacrifice had to be given. Verse 18 Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. 
Now, the author is taking this directly from the book of Exodus, and he's just saying this. The new covenant was made possible because of the death of Christ. And the Mosaic covenant back in Exodus, it also was ratified by blood. Exodus 24, it shows us it was the death of the animals offered as a sacrifice to God. The people and the tabernacle were sprinkled with blood. Even the book of the law, Hebrews tells us, was sprinkled with blood. Now, why would they do that? What's the purpose of getting blood everywhere? What was the purpose? Because it was a sign of their obligation to actually keep the law under the penalty of death. Death, blood was needed to ratify these covenants. And the author adds to this starting in verse 21. He says, Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Moses sprinkled blood on the tabernacle. Moses sprinkled blood on the things in it, and for sure the altar. Again, to show God's law expected obedience. There's a relationship between the ratification of the covenant and the blood. But notice with me, there's a subtle word in our text. In all the Bible translations, in verse 22, it uses the word almost. Almost. Now, why is that there? He says, almost all things are purified with blood. The almost was God's provision for the poor people in Israel. Because God, in his mercy, in his grace, God allowed the poor in Israel to bring a flower offering in the place of an animal if they could not afford two doves. Purification under the Mosaic law came by blood because forgiveness required the shedding of blood. That's why Jesus Christ needed to die. His blood was needed for the forgiveness of sins. His death is the only, only path to life. Remission here means to send away because when God forgives a sinner, he sends away our guilt to be brought up no more. Now, this entire Levitical system commanded by God was useless without the shedding of blood. The beautiful tabernacle, I'd like you to think about this, this beautiful tabernacle with all its tapestries and all the garments, all those beautiful garments the priests wore, they dripped with blood because that that's the reality of sin. It impacts everything and it requires the shedding of blood to be forgiven. Sin is an offense to a holy and righteous God. Have you ever walked out of a movie? Have you ever done that? I've done that many times. Walked out of a movie because the language on the movie or what was being shown on the screen was offensive? Well, how much more for God? You see, our sin is like that before a perfect and righteous God. And because it is so offensive to him, forgiveness costs something. And the most precious thing in his creation is what? Life itself. Life is found within the blood. And so without the shedding of the blood, there's no forgiveness. Do you guys remember back in November of 2008 when a gang of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal Palace in Mumbai, India? After the carnage left almost 200 people dead, a reporter interviewed a guest that was there who had been at the hotel for dinner that night. And the guest described how he and his friends were eating dinner when they heard the gunshots go off. 
And someone grabbed him and they just yanked him right underneath the table. He didn't even really know what was happening. And the assassins, they came through the restaurant shooting people at will until they had killed everyone. It was a shameful day. It was a bloody day. But somehow this man survived. And when the interviewer asked how he was still alive, when everyone else at his table had been killed, here is how he responded. Listen to his words. He said, I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood, they took me for dead. See, I think that's a perfect metaphor, isn't it? Of God's gift through Jesus Christ to each one of us. Because he paid the penalty of sin, because we are covered in the blood of his sacrifice, we can have eternal life. Now, we get to the heart of the matter. This is what I'm excited about in Hebrews. Watch with me starting in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. Now, let's understand this. The tabernacle and everything in it were just mere copies of the heavenly sanctuary. And cleansing in the tabernacle could happen with the blood of animals every year on the Day of Atonement. The tabernacle, if you remember, was purified through the sprinkling of blood. But for the heavenly tabernacle, something greater was required. Animal blood could cleanse the tabernacle on earth. But a better sacrifice, a much better sacrifice, was required to cleanse the offense toward God in heaven. The very blood of the Son of God a much more costly sacrifice. Sacrifices, plural, in verse 23, because the single sacrifice of Jesus required many in the Old Testament to serve as copies. The endless train of animal sacrifices and the constant flow of blood had value because they looked forward to the sacrifice of the Son of God, the permanent sacrifice for our sins. God's people, we belong to the heavenly city, but we defile everything we touch. Even our meeting place with God, the tabernacle in the Old Testament for Israel. And so we need the sacrifice of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, to remove the defilement before God. Now, our next three verses. Hold on and watch these. These are some beautiful verses. Read it with me. It doesn't get much better than this, starting in verse 24. It says, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, we've talked about this in Hebrews before, that the Old Testament tabernacle was a copy that was cleansed with the blood of animals. And every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with a basin of blood to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And each time the high priest, he carried the blood of a fresh animal sacrifice. 
Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has entered into the Holy of Holies, where? In heaven, into the presence of God himself, God the Father. And he has taken with him a better sacrifice. He has gone into God's presence on behalf of his people. See, Christ didn't enter into just a sanctuary made with hands. He entered into the sanctuary in the heavens. His sacrifice was better because he didn't have to offer the sacrifices of animals year after year after year. Nor did he have to offer up himself year after year after year because then, as verse 26 tells us, he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Don't miss this truth because this is an important theological point. It's very important. He offered himself once at the end of the ages. End of the ages. Why does it say that? Well, because the Messiah coming to his people, Israel, was the culmination of the Old Testament. See, Christ's death on the cross ended the Mosaic law and the requirements of the law that were given. And Calvary is the focal point of all the ages. The ages before they looked forward to it. Now the ages look back to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We talk about it every Sunday morning. We look back. The cross of Christ is the center of the ages. It says that Jesus put away sins forever. And when he ascended, Christ formally took on the role of high priest and began to take on his high priestly work for you, for me. The high priest of Israel, he could not stay in the Holy of Holies. The veil would close behind him as soon as he left, shutting him out for an entire another year. But not so with Jesus Christ. He is there today, right now, in the heavenly tabernacle, representing his people, securing our acceptance before God. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He gives us help. He gives us strength. And he's waiting for the day when he will return to this earth to rule and to reign, bringing his people into his eternal kingdom. I hope you're looking forward to it. Christ appeared. God appeared in the flesh. God took on human form in order that he could die for us, the perfect sinless offering. The writer has in mind, at this point, the offerings given on the Day of Atonement, but these were just some of the offerings demanded under the law. See, what we need to look back and understand about the Old Testament sacrifices is that millions of people were obligated to make these offerings. Millions. And the age of the law was not just for a few days. It was for 1,500 years. Do not underestimate how much blood was shed. You see, the Jewish people understood the repetition of sacrifices over and over, but they would need to understand why the death of Christ was final, never to be repeated. Christ was not to be offered again and again because a repeated offering would have meant that Christ would have had to suffer continually. And if Christ's death were repeatable, it would have needed to begin with the dawn of history when sin entered the world and continued throughout the ages. But the death of Christ could only happen once. There was only one incarnation and one death Now, this simple truth here in verse 26, it crushes and ends the idea once and for all that the real body and the real blood of Jesus are present in the communion. It ends that discussion forever. 
Christ is not being sacrificed over and over when the Lord's Supper is being celebrated. He has come down off of that cross. He rose again and he is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. A perfect once for all sacrifice because his atoning sacrifice was finished upon the cross. He came once for one purpose with one payment. He appeared to put away sin. And he's in heaven now, but he will appear again. Our last two verses, read it with me. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. People tend to die once. I don't know if you've caught the pattern in life. People tend to die once. When unbelievers die, one day they will stand where? Before God at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. Believers in the church age, us, will stand before our judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ. Different judgment for different people. Christ died once, not like these repeated sacrifices underneath the Mosaic law. Christ died once, not to be judged, because why? He is the judge. He died once to appear a second time for salvation. And here's what this all means for you and I, for us, because he died for our sins. See, we don't have to fear condemnation after we die. We do not need to fear that. We can look forward to actually being with our Savior. He's already rescued us from the penalty of sin, and one day he's going to forever rescue us from the power of sin. You know, it's natural to fear death, isn't it? We like to preserve our own lives. We do. There's a finality about death, but we can't avoid it. God has appointed that death should visit every person except those privileged enough to be taken home in the rapture. Death comes quicker than we ever thought. And then after that is judgment by a holy God. Now, men are accountable. We're accountable for everything we do and for everything we say. We will give an account before God. There will be no more second chances. What's done on earth is done. And at first glance, verse 28, by the way, it seems to be a reference to the doctrine of election, but I actually don't believe that's the intent of the text. The contextual argument put forth by the author that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many here, it's just meant to tell us that the one sacrifice of Christ benefited many, many people throughout the ages. But move on to the end of the verse with me. Read it again. It says, To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for what? Salvation. See, when the Lord returns at the rapture, every believer will be taken into his presence. But the message of Hebrews has been all throughout that only those found faithful to him will receive the full inheritance. And that's why he says here, those who eagerly wait for him, faithful believers in Christ. When the rapture happens, every believer goes to be with Christ, but only those who have been found faithful will receive their full reward at the judgment seat. And when he appears, it will confirm that our future salvation is absolutely secure in him. Our deliverance from sin, our salvation, our rescue, if you will, it's just gotten started. 
Jesus will return apart from sin. Notice that in the text. Because the sin issue, it was already settled. It's done. It was taken care of on the cross. And when he comes again, it will not be to deal with the sin of believers. He will leave the heavenly sanctuary. And the hope that Christ gives us is the hope that today could be the day he takes us home. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And then when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation to the earth, he will do what? He will come to strike the nations, deliver the world from the bondage of Satan, and usher in his perfect righteousness to this world. Christians eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord are living with hope. And we can look forward to his coming. We can look forward to it, not living in this fear of death, not living in fear of his return, but instead looking to when we get to live with him in his glorious, perfect kingdom for all eternity. The sanctuary of God is in heaven. Our Father is in heaven. Our Savior's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our hope is in heaven. And our treasure should be in heaven. This is why we are to walk by faith, not by sight. No matter what happens on earth, confidence comes by knowing everything has already been settled in heaven. Johnny Johnson, he had a list. A list with 496 names on it. 496 names that Johnny didn't want anyone to forget. You see, the year was 1950, and Johnson, he was an army private, just 18 years old, thrown into combat in Korea. Then his regiment got captured by the Koreans. While being held as a prisoner of war, he noticed many people were being killed. And Johnson began to have a worry. He began to think about something. He began to worry about these brave men that they would be forgotten and that their loved ones back home would never even know when and how and where they died. So he started a list. Using a pencil stub he had, he wrote their names on anything that he could get his hands on. He would write it on little cigarette packages. He would write it on paper he found in the trash. He wrote their names, their units, and their dates of death. And after three months, most of the prisoners were starting to get sick. They were starting to get malnourished. Seventy of them died, and another seven were executed and then they had a change in leadership and a cruel North Korean army major took control of the POWs and things changed dramatically for the worse. There were 758 of them forced to march 120 miles across the snowy mountains. Now, the rules were pretty simple at this point. If American soldiers stumbled or if they fell over, they were shot, killed, left to die right on the spot. Johnson kept his focus. He kept focused on his list. It helped him to ignore his own pain. He managed to jot down 110 men who died on this terrible march through the mountains. That winter, 309 more prisoners died, but Johnson, he just kept writing and writing, adding their names to his secret list, even risking his own life. When guards discovered his list hidden in the wall of his cell, he was tortured and he was accused of maintaining criminal propaganda for his government. But they didn't know that he had another list, a list hidden in the dirt floor and never discovered. And at the end of the war, Johnson, he dug it up. He dug it up and he sealed the list inside of a tube of toothpaste. You got to be creative, people. He put it in a tube of toothpaste and he didn't take it out until he was safely on a ship that was heading home. 
And when on that ship, an officer asked him, they said, what do you have? And Johnson, he told them, it's my list, sir. And he showed it to him. 496 names he risked his life to complete. Now, it took many, many years for people to discover the value of what Johnson had actually created. You see, most people never even knew he made a list. But when his story became a national story and people started finding out about this, he was actually overwhelmed by relatives who wanted to hug him and thank him. They wanted to find the names of their loved ones on the list, a list he kept in a scrapbook. Seeing their names there written down so long ago brought a sense of relief, a sense of gratitude, because listen, as long as a man is on the list, he is not truly lost. Johnny Johnson risked his life to complete a list, a piece of paper that brought peace to families of those he served with. It's a record that cost him considerable pain and suffering, but in the end, he has no regrets about putting it together. You remember Luke 19.10? It tells us, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is committed to a cause that his people will never be forgotten. This was the purpose of the list, to make sure that we were never forgotten. You know, long ago, if you read the book of Job, Job actually had this same concern. He said that his friends had forgotten him during his trials. In Job 19.14, he said, My relatives have failed and my close friends have forgotten me. Now, when did he say that? You see, at that time, Job was bankrupt and living in the city dump. And see, when you got money, it's great. Everybody loves you. But when your money disappears, so do your friends. And no one cared about him anymore. And you know what? It's tragic but true, but the same is going to happen to us. Once we die, once we're dead and gone, this world will not remember us. But our Savior in heaven absolutely will. See, God doesn't even forget about the birds, so he certainly doesn't forget about his people. Remember he said in Matthew, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, Johnny wasn't the only one with a list. God, he has his own, and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And speaking of the new Jerusalem, we see that John taught us in Revelation 21. He said, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who what are written in the Lamb's book of life. Without the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there's no list for you. There's no list for me. And that is why verse 22 has told us already in Hebrews that without shedding of blood, there's no remission, no forgiveness of sins. You see, it took a sacrifice to make the list possible. Verse 28 in Hebrews told us Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So rejoice, believers in Christ. Rejoice, Christians, that your names are written in heaven in his book on his list. And know that the time is coming, as we've read before in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. 
So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we apply it now? Well, Paul shows us in the very next verse. And here's what I want you to take home with you. He says this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so may God be glorified in how we live and how we serve him, living with confidence that he has reserved a place in heaven for us, never to be forgotten. Praise be to God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.